Chapter 15 of Theophrastus Such by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middledorf. Chapter 15 Diseases of Small Authorship. Particular callings, it is known, encourage particular diseases. There is a painter's colic. The Sheffield grinder falls a victim to the inhalation of steel dust. Clergymen so often have a certain kind of sore throat that this otherwise secular ailment gets named after them, and perhaps, if we were to inquire, we should find a certain relation between certain moral ailments and these various occupations. Though here, in the case of clergymen, there would be specific differences. The poor curate, equally with the rector, is liable to clergyman's sore throat, but he would probably be found free from the chronic moral ailments encouraged by the possession of glebe and those higher chances of preferment which follow on having a good position already. On the other hand, the poor curate might have severe attacks of calculating expectancy concerning parishioners' turkeys, cheeses, and fat geese, or of uneasy rivalry for the donations of clerical charities. Authors are so miscellaneous a class that their personified diseases, physical and moral, might include the whole procession of human disorders, led by dyspepsia and ending in madness, the awful dumb show of a world historic tragedy. Take a large enough area of human life, and all comedy melts into tragedy, like the fool's part by the side of Lear. The chief scenes get filled with erring heroes, guileful usurpers, persecuted discoverers, dying deliverers. Everywhere the protagonist has a part pregnant with doom. The comedy sinks to an accessory, and if there are loud laughs, they seem a convulsive transition from sobs. Or if the comedy is touched with a gentle lovingness, the panoramic scene is one where sadness is a kind of mirth, so mingled as if mirth did make us sad and sadness merry. That's a quote from Two Noble Kinsmen. But I did not set out on the wide survey that would carry me into tragedy, and in fact had nothing more serious in mind than certain small chronic ailments that come of small authorship. I was thinking principally of Vorticella, who flourished in my youth not only as a portly lady walking in silk attire, but also as the authoress of a book entitled The Channel Islands, with notes and an appendix. I would by no means make it a reproach to her that she wrote no more than one book. On the contrary, her stopping there seemed to me a laudable example. What Wood would have wished, after experience, was that she had refrained from producing even that single volume and thus from giving her self-importance a troublesome kind of double incorporation, which became oppressive to her acquaintances, and set up in herself one of those slight chronic forms of disease to which I have just referred. She lived in the considerable provincial town of Pumpeter, which had its own newspaper press, with the usual divisions of political partisanship and the usual varieties of literary criticism, the florid and the elusive, the staccato and the peremptory, the clairvoyant and prophetic, the safe and pattern-phrased, or what one might call the many-a-long-day style. 
Porticella, being the wife of an important townsman, had naturally the satisfaction of seeing the Channel Islands reviewed by all the organs of Pompiter opinion, and their articles or paragraphs held as naturally the opening pages in the elegantly bound album prepared by her for the reception of critical opinions. This ornamental volume lay on a special table in her drawing-room, close to the still more gorgeously bound work of which it was the significant effect, and every guest was allowed the privilege of reading what had been said of the authoress and her work in the Pumpeter Gazette and Literary Watchman, the Pumpshire Post, the Church Clock, the Independent Monitor, and the lively but judicious publication known as the medley pie, to be followed up, if he chose, by the instructive perusal of the strikingly confirmatory judgments, sometimes concurrent in their very phrase, of journals of the most distant counties as the Latchgate Argus, the Penlui Universe, the Kakaliki Advertiser, the Goodwin Sands Opinion, and Land's End Times. I had friends in Pupiter, and occasionally paid a long visit there. When I called on Vorticella, who had a cousinship with my hosts, she had to excuse herself because a message claimed her attention for eight to ten minutes, and handing me the album of critical opinions said, with a certain emphasis which, considering my youth, was highly complimentary, that she would really like me to read what I should find there. This seemed a permissive politeness which I could not feel to be an impression, and I ran my eyes over the dozen pages, each with a strip or eyelet of newspaper in the center, with that freedom of mind, in my case meaning freedom to forget, which would be a perilous way of preparing for examination. The private truth being that I had not read the Channel Islands. I was amazed at the variety of matter which the volume must contain to have impressed these different judges with the writer's surpassing capacity to handle almost all branches of inquiry and all forms of presentation. In Jersey, she had shown herself an historian. In Guernsey, a poetess. In Alderney, a political economist. And in Sark, a humorist. There were sketches of character scattered through the pages which might put our fictionists to the blush. The style was eloquent and racy, studied with gems of felicitous remark, and the moral spirit throughout was so superior that, said one, the recording angel, who was not supposed to take account of literature as such, would assuredly set down the work as a deed of religion. The force of this eulogy on the part of several reviewers was much heightened by the incidental evidence of their fastidious and severe taste, which seemed to suffer considerably from the imperfections of our chief writers, even the dead and canonized. One afflicted them with the smell of oil, another lacked erudition, and attempted, though vainly, to dazzle them with trivial conceits. One wanted to be more philosophical than nature had made him. Another, in attempting to be comic, produced the melancholy effect of a half-starved Merry Andrew, while one and all, from the author of the Areopagitica downwards, had faults of style which must have made an able hand in the latchgate Argus shake the many-glanced heads belonging thereto with a smile of compassionate disapproval. 
not so the authoress of the channel islands vorticella and shakespeare were allowed to be faultless i gathered that no blemishes were observable in the work of this accomplished writer and the repeated information that she was second to none seemed after this superfluous her thick octavo notes appendix and all was unflagging from beginning to end and the land's end times using a rather dangerous rhetorical figure recommended you not to take up the volume unless you had leisure to finish it at a sitting it had given one writer more pleasure than he had had for many a long day a sentence which had a melancholy resonance suggesting a life of studious languor such as all previous achievements of the human mind failed to stimulate into enjoyment i think the collection of critical opinions wound up with this sentence and i had turned back to look at the lithographed text sketch of the authoress which fronted the first page of the album when the fair original re-entered and i laid down the volume on its appropriate table well what do you think of them said vorticella with an emphasis which had some significance unperceived by me i know you are a great student give me your opinion of these opinions they must have been very gratifying to you i answered with a little confusion for i perceived that i might easily mistake my footing and began to have a presentiment of an examination for which i was by no means crammed on the whole yes said vorticella in a tone of concession a few of the notices are written with some pains but not one of them has really grappled with the chief idea in the appendix i don't know whether you have studied political economy but you saw what i said on page three ninety eight about the jersey fisheries i bowed i confess it with the mean hope that this movement in the nape of my neck would be taken as sufficient proof that i had read marked and learned i do not forgive myself for this pantomimic falsehood but i was young and morally timorous and vorticella's personality had an effect on me something like that of a powerful mesmerizer when he directs all his ten fingers toward your eyes as unpleasantly visible ducts for the invisible stream i felt a great power of contempt in her if i did not come up to her expectations well she resumed you observe that not one of them has taken up that argument but i hope i convinced you about the dragnets here was a judgment on me orientally speaking i had lifted up my foot on the steep descent of falsity and was compelled to set it down on a lower level i should think you must be right said i inwardly resolving that on the next topic i would tell the truth i know that i am right said vorticella the fact is that no critic in this town is fit to meddle with such subjects unless it be volvox and he with all his command of language is very superficial it is volvox who writes in the monitor i hope you noticed how he contradicts himself my resolution helped by the equivalence of dangers stoutly prevailed and i said no no i am surprised he is the only one who finds fault with me he is a dissenter you know the monitor is the dissenter's organ but my husband has been so useful to them in municipal affairs that they would not venture to run my book down they feel obliged to tell the truth about me still baldvox betrays himself after praising me for my penetration and accuracy he presently says i have allowed myself to be imposed upon 
and have let my active imagination run away with me. That is like his dissenting impertinence. Active my imagination may be, but I have it under control. Little Vibrio, who writes the playful notice in the medley pie, has a clever hit at Volvox in that passage about the steeplechase of imagination, where the loser wants to make it appear that the winner has only run away with. But if you did not notice Volvox's self-contradiction, you would not see the point, added Vorticella, with rather a chilling intonation. Or perhaps you did not read the medley pie notice. That is a pity. Do take up the book again. Vibrio is a poor little tippling creature, but as Miss Carlyle would say, he has an eye, and he is always lively. I did take up the book again, and read as demanded. It is very ingenious, said I, really appreciating the difficulty of being lively in this connection. It seemed even more wonderful than that a Vibrio should have an eye. You were probably surprised to see no notices from the London press, said Vorticella. I have one, a very remarkable one, but I reserved it until the others have spoken, and then I shall introduce it to wind up. I shall have them reprinted, of course, and inserted in future copies. This from the Calendabrum is only eight lines in length, but full of venom. It calls my style dull and pompous. I think that will tell its own tale, placed after the other critiques. People's impressions are so different, said I. Some persons find Don Quixote dull. Yes, said Vorticella in emphatic chest tones. Dullness is a matter of opinion, but pompous, that I never was and never could be. Perhaps he means that my matter is too important for his taste. And I have no objection to that. I did not intend to be trivial. I should just like you to read that passage about the dragnets, because I could make it clearer to you. A second, less ornamental copy was at her elbow and was already opened, when, to my great relief, another guest was announced, and I was able to take my leave without seeming to run away from the Channel Islands, though not without being compelled to carry with me the loan of the marked copy, which I was to find advantageous in a re-perusal of the appendix and was only requested to return before my departure from Pumpeter. Looking into the volume now with some curiosity, I found it a very ordinary combination of the commonplace and ambitious, one of those books which one might imagine to have been written under the old Grub Street coercion of hunger and thirst, if they were not known beforehand to be the gratuitous production of ladies and gentlemen, whose circumstances might be called altogether easy, but for an uneasy vanity that happened to have been directed towards authorship, its importance was that of a polypus, tumor, fungus, or other erratic outgrowth, noxious and disfiguring in its effect on the individual organism which nourishes it. Poor Verticella might not have been more wearisome on a visit than the majority of her neighbors, but for this disease of magnified self-importance belonging to small authorship, I understand that the chronic complaint of the Channel Islands never left her. As the years went on, and the publication tended to vanish in the distance for her neighbor's memory, she was still bent on dragging it to the foreground, and her chief interest in new acquaintances was the possibility of lending them her book, entering into all details concerning it, and requesting them to read her album of critical opinions. 
This really made her more tiresome than Gregorina, whose distinction was that she had a cholera, and who did not feel herself in her true position with strangers until they knew it. My experience with Vorticella led me for a time into the false supposition that this sort of fungus disfiguration, which makes self disagreeably larger, was most common to the female sex. But I presently found that here too the male could assert his superiority and show a more vigorous boredom. I have known a man with a single pamphlet containing an assurance that somebody else was wrong, together with a few approved quotations produce a more powerful effect of shuddering at his approach than ever Vorticella did with her varied octavo volume, including notes and appendix. Males of more than one nation recur to my memory, who produced from their pocket on the slightest encouragement a small pink or buff duodecimo pamphlet wrapped in silver paper as a present held ready for an intelligent reader. A mode of propagandism, you remark in excuse, they wish to spread some useful corrective doctrine. Not necessarily. The indoctrination aimed at was perhaps to convince you of their own talents by the sample of an ode on Shakespeare's birthday or a translation from Horace. Vorticella may pair off with Monas, who had also written his one book, Here and There, or A Trip from Truro to Transylvania and not only carried it in his portmanteau when he went on visits, but took the earliest opportunity of depositing it in the drawing-room, and afterwards would enter to look for it, as if under pressure of a need for reference, begging the lady of the house to tell him whether she had seen a small volume bound in red. One hostess at last ordered it to be carried into his bedroom to save his time, but it presently reappeared in his hands and was again left with inserted slips of paper on the drawing-room table. Depend upon it, vanity is human, native alike to men and women, only in the male it is of a denser texture, less volatile, so that it less immediately informs you of its presence, but is more massive and capable of knocking you down if you come into collision with it. While in women, vanity lays by its small revenges, as in a needle-case always at hand. The difference is in muscle and fingertips, and traditional habits and mental perspective, rather than in the original appetite of vanity. It is an approved method now to explain ourselves by a reference to the races as little like us as possible, which leads me to observe that in Fiji the men use the most elaborate hairdressing, and that wherever tattooing is in vogue, the male ex expects to carry off the prize of admiration for pattern and workmanship. Arguing analogically, and looking for this tendency of the Fijian or Hawaiian male in the eminent European, we must suppose that it exhibits itself under the form of civilized apparel, and it would be a great mistake to estimate passionate effort by the effect it produces on our perception or understanding. It is conceivable that a man may have concentrated no less will and expectation on his wristbands, gaiters, and the shape of his hat-brim, or an appearance which impresses you as that of the modern swell, than the Ojibwe on an ornamentation which seems to us much more elaborate. In what concerns the search for admiration, at least, it is not true that the effect is equal to the cause and resembles it. 
the cause of a flat curl on the masculine forehead such as might have been seen when george the fourth was king must have been widely different in quality and intensity from the impression made by that small scroll of hair on the organ of the beholder merely to maintain an attitude and gait which i notice in certain club men and especially an inflation of the chest accompanying very small remarks there goes i am convinced an expenditure of physical energy little appreciated by the multitude a mental vision of self and deeply impressed beholders which is quite without antitype in what we call the effect produced by that hidden process no there is no need to admit that women would carry away the prize of vanity in a competition where differences of custom were fairly considered a man cannot show his vanity in a tight skirt which forces him to walk sideways down the staircase but let the match be between the respective vanities of largest beard and tightest skirt and here too the battle would be to the strong end of chapter 15 this librivox recording is in the public domain